0: Greetings and happy Founders Day, my friends! It's my pleasure to welcome you to the Tuesday, 18th of July, 2023 episode of the Greenwich in Town for All Season show podcast. This weekly Greenwich, Connecticut history podcast is hosted by me. My name is Jeffrey Bingham Mead. I'm a direct descendant of the 17th century founders of Greenwich, Connecticut, long known as the Gateway to New England. The town of Greenwich was founded on July 18, 1640, 383 years ago. Imagine that. Well, since its humble beginnings, Greenwich, Connecticut has emerged to be one of America's most notable and attractive communities, a special place that we call home. Whether your roots go back nearly 400 years as ours do, whether you're here to stay, passing through, whatever the case may be, we welcome you with open arms. You're a part of our history. Congratulations, and I'm so glad that you could join us for today's show. The Greenwich Town for All Season show podcast is made possible by Alexander Affiliates, Eastern Neurologic Services, Kevin M.J. O'Connor of Jeffrey Matthews Wealth Management, and this month we are promoting Michael Halepka Tree Service, LLC, and we welcome the support of listeners just like you everywhere. Well, we've got a great show for you. So without any further ado, let's get started.
1: Coming up on today's
0: show. Happy Founders Day, my friends. Greenwich, Connecticut is 383 years strong. Congratulations. I'm going to share this year's Sound of Greenwich official proclamation with you. On Talk of the Town, you'll hear an encore conversation I had in 2018 with Missy Wolf. She is considered by many, including me, to be Greenwich's leading authority on the town's first century starting in 1640. Wolf is the author of Hidden History of Colonial Greenwich. She's also the author of Insubordinate Spirit, A True Story of Life and Loss in Earliest America, and uh, we'll have a very, very enjoyable Encore uh, experience for you. On Greenwich in the Gilded Age, our visit will take us to Park Cottage on Rock Drive in Belhaven, made possible on today's show by Victorian Summer, The Historic Houses of Belhaven Park, Greenwich, Connecticut by Matt Bernard. On Greenwich Life as it is and was, Irwin Edwards penned a piece about the Pickwick Corners building at the top of Greenwich Avenue. It was constructed by Isaac Lewis Mead in the late 19th century. It's Very, very easily recognizable at the time that Edwards wrote his piece. The building was a candy store and factory. On Crimes and Misdemeanors, our featured crime history includes ladies in a fight on the Northfield Street area and a poem composed by a an incarcerated Greenwich resident in the Bridgeport Jail a century ago. And in other historical news you'll hear about Boy Scout Troop number 4 of North Greenwich who in 1923 quote had an unusual outing in New York last week under the leadership of the Scoutmaster unquote. It was announced in Greenwich also a century ago that the Reverend Anne C. Torre was the first ordained female pastor in Fairfield County, Connecticut's history, and she was one of the very few to be ordained in the New England states at the time. The first instance of skywriting happened apparently on August 9, 1923, and it was an advertisement for the Lucky Strike brand of cigarettes and tobacco. In 1912, Greenwich families were treated to an advice column on... How to amuse children? I think that you might be interested in that. And in 1956, Greenwich's people became whisker conscious with the upcoming then 260th anniversary of Greenwich's founding. It was the first observance since 1940 with with 15,000 attending celebrations. There's lots to see, lots to do, lots to learn about the history of the town of Greenwich, Connecticut. My friends, I think you've come to the right place to learn about the history of this extraordinary community. We'll have all this and more as our history continues to unfold.
1: Stay tuned. We'll be right back after these important messages.
0: A landscape architecture firm with an optimistic view of the future, Alexander Affiliates is a professional landscape architectural firm specializing in designing and planning visually appealing, functional, and environmentally responsible outdoor spaces for residential and commercial developments. From backyard perennial garden preparation to regional coastal planning, we have you covered. In addition, we serve a global clientele that has brought in a lot of business for us through word-of-mouth referrals. Some of Alexander Affiliate's clients include construction companies, land and property developers, government offices, engineering companies, geographers, and soil samplers. Its mission is simple. Instead of focusing on saving the planet, let's concentrate on thriving together. In business since 1980, you can learn more about Alexander Affiliates by going online to alexanderaffiliates.com. To learn more and to contact Alexander Affiliates, you can call 203-869-8632. Again, that's 203-869-8632. Its mailing address is P.O. Box 711, Greenwich, Connecticut, 06836. My friends, don't gamble with your health. Eastern Neurological Services offers comprehensive neurologic diagnoses and therapeutic services. Its principal, Dr. Xiaoke Gao, M.D., is a top New York neurologist who practices in dynamic treatment of neurological diseases, neurorehabilitation, and physical therapy. With convenient locations in New York City and a multilingual staff, Eastern Neurologic Services offers a wide array of treatments for neurological disorders. You'd be glad to know that Eastern Eastern Neurological Services provides general neurological consultations, on-site diagnostic testing, and physical and neurocognitive therapy. Visit easternneurologic.com. That's easternneurologic.com, or call 212-889-6540 or 212-227. 6500. It's a fact of life that our health is important. Contact Eastern Neurologic today. You'll be glad you did. Well, thank you, Kevin M.J. O'Connor, Vice President of Jeffrey Matthews Wealth Management. Knowledgeable in the complexities of the financial markets, with a passion for servicing clients and their financial needs. My friends, learn more at jeffreymatthews.com or call Kevin M.J. O'Connor at his Greenwich office, telephone 203-485-7595. Again, that's Kevin M.J. O'Connor, his Greenwich office at (music) 203-485-7595. It is my pleasure to read for you the proclamation from First Selectman Fred Camillo, designating Greenwich Founders Day, July eighteenth, 2023. The text goes as follows. Whereas on July 18th, 1640, Watertown, Massachusetts neighbors Robert Feek and Daniel Patrick jointly purchased land in Old Greenwich from the local Munsee Indians. And whereas the Munsee agreed to the occupation of their land in exchange for 25 coats or bolts of cloth. And whereas the aforesaid land lay outside the western boundary of the puritanical English town of Stamford. And whereas... Captain Patrick and Elizabeth Feek were forced to recognize Dutch sovereignty over their property in 1642, and whereas the New Haven colony did not confederate Greenwich until 16 years after its founding, thereby placing Greenwich under English sovereignty, and whereas the land known by the native inhabitants as Monacoego was the particular purchase of Elizabeth Feek, and was thus referred to as Elizabeth's Neck, and subsequently as Todd's and Greenwich Point, and whereas the small and exceedingly beautiful peninsula was purchased in 1944 by the Town of Greenwich as a preserve, park, and beach for all to enjoy, and whereas the preservation of Greenwich Point's natural beauty and history is emblematic of the Town of Greenwich's respect for our environmental heritage and the rich tapestry of our history. Now, therefore, I, not me, Frederick Camillo, first selectman of to the Town of Greenwich, do hereby proclaim July 18, 2023 as Greenwich Founders' Day. I call upon all citizens of the the town of Greenwich, the Greenwich Historical Society, the First Congregational Church of Old Greenwich, and the Greenwich Point Conservancy in commemorating the founding of our town 383 years ago. Welcome to Talk of the Town on the Greenwich Town for All Seasons show podcast with Jeffrey Binghammead, your host. Here we engage in informative conversation and commentary with Greenwich, Connecticut's movers and shakers. Missy Wolfe, author of Hidden History of Colonial Greenwich, discovered the lost world of Greenwich, Connecticut in the 1600s by transcribing hundreds of handwritten documents owned by the town. Digitally ordering these centuries-old papers opened an ancient portal that showed how the town was first created, managed, and developed from a wilderness. Lost place names are recovered along with the functioning of the Greenwich Plantation, operated for over a century. This first town was a mandatory and communal endeavor that employed watchers and warners, sheepmasters, cowkeepers, fence viewers, haywards, pounders, and planters. Faced with an ever-challenging new world, the first citizens of the town of Greenwich created many new world strategies. Quite experimentally, they balanced religious and civic authority, private and common interests, and financial inequities across communities. As a consequence of their heroic efforts, these first comers often found it more challenging to please their own than it was to please their God. (laughs) The first here were compelled to depart from the past and fashion an idealized yet still imperfect new society. Missy Wolf details the strategies and setbacks of creating community in colonial America's first period. This work includes many new maps and illustrations. Historian Missy Wolfe has always loved histories and biographies that allow her to time travel to meet unusual people and experience dramatic events. Growing up, she loved the works of Lady Antonia Fraser, Alison Weir, and Barbara Tuckman. Impressed by their research and writing, Wolfe began investigating the earliest history of her hometown, Greenwich, Connecticut. For this she was also inspired by Nathaniel Philbrick's Mayflower and Russell Shorto's Island at the Center of the World. After receiving an MBA from Columbia University and an early career in advertising, Wolf pursued her interest in history, design, and fine and decorative arts with an associate's degree from the New York School of Interior Design and a certificate of appraisal studies for Fine and Decorative Arts from New York University. She remains fascinated by the past and its appreciation by the modern world. Missy Wolfe is also the author of Insubordinate Spirit, A True Story of Life and Loss in Earliest America, 1610 to 1665. It's with pleasure that I announce that Missy Wolfe has continued with her invaluable scholarship by publishing the great ledger records of the town of Greenwich, 1640 to 1742, in volumes 1 and 2. In volume 1, a century of ancient town records is rediscovered and revealed. An embarrassment of riches describes a vault filled with thousands of documents in several thick volumes that were handwritten in homemade ink with quiddle pens and recorded the entire first century of the town of Greenwich's colonial beginnings. These records were so extensive, however, they defied comprehensive transcription and publication attempts. These riches were invaluable, to say the least, inaccessible, I'm sorry, scribbled, scratchy, chaotically organized, and seemingly often illegible. They showed a dedication to documenting This world in erratic spelling, layout, and order. They resisted untangling for over three centuries until the advent of technology. My friends, I gotta tell you, I have seen these books, and what I have just said is 100% true. I just ask you to trust me on that. (laughs) Now, addressed with voice dictation, digital reordering, and editing, they finally reveal the inner workings of this world with all of the 18th century challenges and solutions in two volumes. A boom for genealogy, hundreds of people are newly located in this time and place. For history research, a colonial first period town is fully documented in its strategies to order themselves, their society, geography, and their governance. An era undocumented and utterly recognizable today. Yes, indeed. One marvels how time can now be so wonderfully traveled. Volume 2 is the never previously described comprehensive grantor and grantee data for the first colonized century of the town of Greenwich. This information concerning the first sales and purchases of land between individuals, including will distributions and gifts, is arranged alphabetically and chronologically by grantor name. The volume includes land descriptors, price, Signatories and many, many newly discovered personal relationships, personal names that are not grantors and, or grantees, are also indexed for the first time. My friends, Missy Wolf's published works are available on Amazon.com. You can also contact the Greenwich Historical Society's gift shop at 203-869-6899 for availability. If you would like further information, I invite you to contact me, and you can do so by email by going to GreenwichAtownForAllSeasons at gmail.com. Again, you can contact me at GreenwichAtownForAllSeasons.com. At gmail.com welcome to Greenwich a town for all seasons it's a pleasure to have you with us today what was the spark that ignited your interest in 17th century Greenwich
1: I had heard in some old histories and I read just very short briefly that there had been a very large Indian massacre launched out of Tomac Cove and I wanted to find out more about it and I certainly did and that resulted in my first book about the founding of Greenwich which is called insubordinate spirit it's the the uh, sort of the uh, nonfiction story of Elizabeth uh, Winthrop P. Callot and uh, how she was used as a political pawn between the Dutch and the English. There was a a very strong tension on our border between, our current border between Stamford and Greenwich was also the border between New Netherland and New England. And we were on the Dutch side of the border. However, the English wanted us badly they set elizabeth up as an adulteress she married william hallett in within new netherland in manhattan by governor keith the dutch director however the english in stamford stamford was a satellite of the new haven colony the new haven colony very much wanted greenwich they didn't recognize her dutch marriage so they slandered her and used her and called her an adulteress but in effect it was just a ploy seize her land. They did try and seize it. They said they were going to save it from the Dutch. However, Elizabeth didn't have, you know, any feeling that way at all. She didn't want her land saved by the English because they wanted to take her to court. At that time, the, uh, you know, punishment for adultery was the death penalty. So, you know, the politics, you know, at that time was very fierce.
0: Share some thoughts with us about the early records you consulted and your research methods uh, in compiling this book?
1: Well, I, I have long known that down in the Greenwich Town vault are some thousands of, of documents, all in handwriting from the 1600s, that have been cherry picked over the years by people looking for their genealogy and for the churches. However, they've never been comprehensively transcribed. Uh, someone in the 1970s spent a lot of money and beautifully conserved them. They're all bound and washed in plastic sleeves, um, but they were never. Contempl- comprehensively transcribe because there's so many of them and you could never sit there and type them all out but now with voice dictation technology i've set up my little card table down there and i have a microphone and i run my hand my finger on each line and i speak it the computer then types it out that is how i've been transcribing it is the only way of making this information accessible yeah. which i have tried to do in hidden history of colonial greenwich You know, you find out so many obsolete place names, lost place names in Greenwich, and, you know, all about the initial industry. You know, I read that it was speculated that the first economy here in the 1600s was selling apples and clams. Well, in effect, the first economy was meat and leather tanning. Mm. There were tanneries, many tanneries, many uh, livestock pounds throughout the town. Uh, You know, they would then salt meat in barrels and ship it around the region. They would make leather, they would make and braid tack, making saddles, harnesses, shoes, You know, any kind of gloves were a big product of Greenwich at that time. So it, it was so hard to farm here. It was so rocky that they, they turned to animal husbandry as the first industry, which was then largely, you know, this era of the Greenwich plantation really only lasted for 100 years because in the American Revolution, they worked so hard to create this place was backbreaking work i mean these people they call themselves strivers and they work so terribly hard to make a go of it here and i think actually you know that's a an echo from history that still resonates today people from of greenwich also to in modern day work so very hard to have gotten here to stay here to make a success of it here and i you know the town is looking for a a sort of a tagline for the real estate industry here to help improve sales and i think they could take one from our history and the tagline should be drivers welcome
0: Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah we'll we'll put that out there too i mean i think that, I. that would work absolutely now i got to ask you something you wrote in your book you said the town of greenwich's founding in particular reflects the Anglo-Dutch anguish in America. Now that caught my attention, and I wanted to know if you would talk to us about
1: this. Well, at the time of Greenwich founding, there was they, there were sort of four phases of the Anglo-Dutch wars happening in Europe, and they were primarily naval fought battles. But you know, the the conflict between the Dutch and the English was happening in Europe, and they used then the colonies in America to help support this hegemony that they were trying to achieve. Mm. And Elizabeth's story of the jurisdictional tension between the Dutch and the English played out here in Greenwich where the English wanted to seize Greenwich. New Haven Colony was jealous of the Connecticut Colony in Hartford because they saw that they had become successful by expanding their jurisdictional reach, controlling more and more uh, little towns on Long Island and on this side of the Sound. New Haven Colony was faltering, trying to achieve the same thing. New Haven established Stamford, And they also wanted Greenwich to encroach nearer to the Dutch on Manhattan. So they were trying to do that, and you know, in Elizabeth's story was a land grab story. What they were trying to do, and so there was such you know tension about that and saber rattling about Elizabeth's Greenwich land that they agreed to have a treaty, the Treaty of Hartford in sixteen fifty. You know, they tried to prosecute Elizabeth in forty eight, and at that treaty. The Dutch. It was Peter Stuyvesant and John Winthrop Jr. were meeting to reconcile these jurisdictional issues of laws mandated in one uh, jurisdiction not respected in the other. Elizabeth's story was part of this, and Elizabeth, you know, was John Winthrop Jr.'s cousin and uh, you know past sister-in-law. His father was her guardian. Elizabeth was an intimate, you know, Winthrop family member, and so they decided at that treaty that. Greenwich would remain under the control of the Dutch. However, they, you know, as perfect politicians, they created not just one border between the Dutch and the English in Greenwich, they created three borders, which <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, the ultimate political compromise. Yeah. You know, which confused historians or, you know, uh, uh, appealed to, you know, their jurisdictional wishes over time and we then it somehow got distorted over time. Right that Greenwich was an ink, founded as an English territory, which it, it was not. I have a, yeah. an article out on that. Yeah. That we were a Dutch jurisdiction, you know, for our first 16 years until the Haven Colony then took us over, sort of against the wishes of the people, even though they, you know, had to sign on to it. You could be punished and brought to court if you didn't agree with the new Haven Colony takeover Greenwich. So it was a sort of a hostile takeover by the New Colony. Mm. And then when New Haven Colony failed, Connecticut Colony took us over. And, you know, that's when all of our records, the majority of the records down in the vault began to be produced because Connecticut Colony mandated, you know, now, okay, guys, locally, you have to record your vital statistics, your marriages, births, deaths, land transactions, which is where we find, you know, the obsolete place names been lost, but now hopefully are becoming recovered. Mm. All of the records is from the Connecticut Colony.
0: How would you characterize the men and women of Greenwich in the
1: 1600s? I could have a second to, to read you something I wrote, because I like it. Okay,
0: okay. go ahead. <laughs>
1: you know, the people that were here that governed the town were the, the sons and daughters of people who had first landed at the Massachusetts Bay Colony. Mm-hmm. So they were the second-generation people. And those people who first landed, you know, had to tackle, how do we divide up all this vast wilderness? So they had to create a system for it. So they devised a lottery system. It's our town at first, just the town, people handed out grants of land. But of course, a lot of people started squawking about that, finding it unfair. So they borrowed this device of the lottery system, which had been used up around in the Massachusetts area. That's how we began dividing our wilderness up. But these people were you know, taught by their parents Their parents were children of the Protestant Reformation. They were very used to standing up for themselves, and I would say they were—I would describe them as ornery, sort of outspoken, standing their, you know, their ground with grit in town meetings. Oh, the town meeting arguments are classic. You could reproduce them today, (laughs) and they were, um, you know, they were not these plain, soft-spoken, two-dimensional characters of Pilgrims or Puritans you know, with the tall gray hats and the buckle in the center. They weren't anything like that. Yeah. They were tough, I would say, testy, very determined. They were planters, really acting more like cowboys and cowgirls. They they were people who broke wild horses uh, for domestic use, because here there were many wild, formerly domesticated animals, but The fencing at that time was so terrible that animals would frequently break through and get out into the wild. So our people had a term for these wild horses. They were called jadges, sort of a uh, post-Elizabethan slang term that's in the archives. You know, They would break wild horses. They would ride and repair these huge fence lines that they made. They made a fence line that stretched all the way continuously from the Mianus River down to the Byram River. They fenced off all the necks reach out into the water. They would use that as alternately putting animals in there to manure it over the winter, and then they let the animals out into impounds or pounds and then plant those areas. So they were, you know, the next were really the production centers. Of, and the next that reach into the water were really the municipal Greenwich Plantation. If you lived here, you were required to work it, you know, maintain it, you know, plant it, harvest it, Maintain the animals in those necks and and fence them. So it was, you know, a very uh, sort of co-op situation here in the 1600s to make a go of You had your own farm, so you know these people, men, women, boys, and girls, you know, they all used and knew how to use guns and knives, and they hunted and trapped and shot for their, you know, <laughs> for their defense and their diet. You know, they had to mark all of their livestock. They they were town branders. There were, you had to earmark all of your animals so you knew who they belonged to. They um, drove herds of sheep and oxen and cattle. Imagine this. Yeah. From Old Greenwich, which was the epicenter, it was the population center, they would drive herds of animals up, out of Old Greenwich, up Sheep Hill Road to Palmer Hill Road, mm-hmm. crossing the Mianus at Palmer Hill because that was the original crossing site. For hundreds of years before the current location crossing is, down Valley Road to uh, Costcob around the you know the Mead Avenue area, which mm-hmm. was triangular small field called the Upper Costcob Field. Thereby, uh, Stickling's Brook, across from the Costcob Firehouse, right. was one of the first fields that they would you know out pasture their animals to. Imagine the sight of that! Wouldn't you love to have seen that?
0: Oh, that would have been quite something! (laughs) I really would. Mm -hmm. I wanted to to ask you if you would please talk to us a little bit about something that intrigued me. It's called the Switchback Road.
1: No, the Switchback Road, the the Greenwich Town plot. You know, some where was our you know traditional New England town with the church at the center. Well, we actually we did have one. It was in. On the west side of the Mayanus River, uh, which they first called Horseneck, there was Greenwich, which was old Greenwich. And then when they crossed over finally, 40 years later, took them to expand across the river. The town plot is up where the Episcopal Church is and Putz Tavern, the synagogue, and then the second congregational, you know, is sitting on top of the hill. So that was our sort of western Greenwich uh, town plot north of that town plot area as you come down north street the top of north street was a local commons where they they pastured animals up there to have them convenient and close by however their daily access was to go from the town plot where they had their home lots and houses down to belhaven belhaven neck was their favorite place to to plant and animals because it wasn't as cliffy and rocky as Pascob Neck or Rocky Neck, where Millbrook is, Byron Point was pretty far away. So they really went back and forth from Bellhaven called Horseneck Field. Horseneck Common Field was the first field developed up to the town plot back and forth every day. Mm -hmm. Of course, then their houses reached, first some of the first colonial houses were down by Bellhaven. In fact, that, that town plot location up by Christchurch was or yeah, Christchurch was their second choice. At first they wanted to locate the second town down by the Boys and Girls Club mm. and work their way, you know, lay it out sort of so that it reached back where the car dealerships are. However, that was in sixteen seventy three and that was the year that the Dutch for one year retook Manhattan. There were armed Dutch warships going up and down Long Island Sound. That's Gave pause and they realized that that location was far too vulnerable to attack by water so they pulled back a mile inland and set the town plot you know up on top of that plateau from which they could see Long Island Sound mm-hmm. you know and and survey it constantly that was surprising to me
0: yes yeah I was occurred. gonna ask, yeah I was gonna ask you what are um, or worse some of the surprises that you feature
1: in the book? Well, they, you know, they had to grapple with brand new things. They, people coming over here, thought that they would make a, a fully 100, percent you know, Protestant society. Of course, that was impossible. You know, there were some people who came over who, who just came over for, you know, uh, trying to make some money. There were mer- a lot of merchants. There was civil unrest in England, and they were, you know, the the churches were being, people were being killed. If you, you know, it was at the sort of a Catholic Protestant Civil war happening in Europe, and they came over here trying to escape that and keep their families safe. Along comes a, a new variation. There were always schisms within the Protestant religion, people mm-hmm. feeling, you know, variations and versions on the theme. However, a, a radical new thought came into being on uh, Long Island and towns near Manhattan, and it was the, the Quaker philosophy. Oh ah, yes. You know, what do we do with this animal? And in Greenwich, particularly, it was very difficult because Protestantism was a state mandated religion and the Connecticut Colony dictated that you, if you have a community, you have to have a minister. Well, that was fine. Greenwich population was always very small and then when they expanded across the Mayanus River, suddenly they have two communities and they can't afford a minister for each community. So they required the minister then to start splitting his time on either side of the river. Now imagine that all year long in the winter, having to travel from old Greenwich up Sheep Hill Road, crossing at Palmer Hill, down Valley Road, up the country road or modern day post road on the switchback that went to reach the town plot switchback, very arduous to get there. You know, The current roadway replaces it. It's a straight shot from Greenwich High School up to the top of the hill you know, if, you're, if you're going that direction south, you know, Millbrook is on your left and the Greenwich High School playing field is on your right. Now we have a straight shot, but it was a very steep switchback and you can still see traces of it there. Mm-hmm. and the minister you know was practically impossible. So we had a string of ministers, about ten people that quit practically as soon as they got here, you know, and finding it way too difficult. So that was a real struggle that we had keeping ministers. When the Quaker religion uh, was embraced by a number of our town people, townsmen, they said, "Since we believe in the Quakers, we're not going to pay for a Puritan Protestant minister." And oh, that caused such acrimony <laughs> yeah. that they they really banished them yes. to Byram. Yeah. So partitioning, you know, happened even even then because sure. it was just too divisive. The community had to have cohesion to work as one. Yeah. You know, with everyone in agreement, sort of a common myth that we have to believe in to make this endeavor work. So, and they had to grapple with another thing, which was the generation that first governed Greenwich then had their children grow up and become adults. And they too needed land. They looked at how long it had taken them to develop old Greenwich in these tiny little plots. When they expanded across the river, they surveyed Greenwich salt Hundreds and hundreds of open acreage, yeah. you know, and so they, they wanted to, there was a movement to give their kids all this land, ten, they called the 10-acre lot dispute, 10 acres, beginning at the top of North Street, North Street at no, North Maple, yeah. and then going northward, give them 10 acres for free. Yeah. Well, that that caused huge conflict because the old guy said, you can't do that because that'll damnify my holdings. It'll wreck the tax structure, which is based on cost of the land purchased. And if you're going to give the boys land free, you know, that'll totally wreck our our prior agreements. And so there was a debate about that for 10 years. So they're coming to grips with brand new issues, which they didn't know they were going to have to face. And it was—it's been really fun to see how they how they worked it out. By the way, the old guys won in the end, and they the boys never got the land for free. They they did <laughs> have to they did have to pay for it.
0: It's an imperfect world, isn't it? Indeed. Well, yeah, yeah, it is what it you is. You know, you
1: think that oh, life was you know romantic and in the 1600s here. Absolutely, it was not. These people worked, I believe, certainly as hard as we work on our hardest days yeah. every day. Yeah. You know. And they faced, they were nursing their families through cholera, smallpox, typhoid, bad teeth, broken bones, you know, and doing it without our modern technologies and without any power tools and without science, you know, it was quite a life
0: my friends uh my guest today has been missy wolf she is the author of hidden history of colonial greenwich my friends please put this amazing book about 17th century greenwich connecticut on your reading list missy wolf i want to thank you very very much for being with us today
1: thank you jeffrey thank you so much
0: You're listening to the Greenwich A-Town for All Season show podcast hosted by Jeffrey Bingham Mead. That's me, a direct descendant of the 17th century founders of the town of Greenwich, Connecticut, the gateway to New England. The Greenwich A-Town for All Season show podcast is made possible by Alexander Affiliates, Eastern Neurologic Services, Mr. Kevin M.J. O'Connor of Jeffrey Matthews Wealth Management and listeners like you everywhere. Thank you. The best kept secret in historic Greenwich, Connecticut is a marvelous destination with an even more extraordinary mission. Voted Best Coffee Shop in Greenwich by the readers of Greenwich Magazine and honored with the Community Impact Leader Award by the Connecticut Restaurant Association in 2022, Coffee for Good invites you to be a part of a magical story of a restored historic treasure, a destination that inclusively brings people together. Thanks to a unique nonprofit partnership between Abelus and the Second Congregational Church. You'll be instantly drawn to the warmth and the historical ambiance when you enter the 1858 Italianate-styled Solomon Mead House at 48 Maple Avenue on the campus of the Second Congregational Church. Serving coffee, teas, an assortment of delectable goodies and more, Coffee for Good employs and trains people with special needs. Through a self-sustaining inclusive platform, trainees acquire the skills and confidence they need to thrive in the community. Open daily Monday through Saturday, 8 a.m. to 6 p.m., except Sundays, Coffee for Good offers you free Wi Fi, free parking, indoor and outdoor seating year round in a relaxed setting with a vibe all its own. A popular destination for informal business meetings, gatherings, and a fantastic study spot, too. Take it from me, my friends. The word about Coffee for Good has gotten around. After all, its success is driven by a never ending commitment to excellence and inclusion. Coffee for Good is located at 48 Maple Avenue on the campus of the Second Congregational Church, all part of the Putnam Hill National Historic District on the National Register of Historic Places. Open daily, 8 a.m. through 6 p.m., except Sundays. You can learn more by going to coffeeforgood.org. Speaking of Coffee for Good... Your next hire is just a coffee away. Well, how about that? Now, did you know that Coffee for Good is an on the job training platform with ABLIS for people with special needs? Well, it's true. It graduates, or its graduates, emerge with the technical and professional skills to be employed in jobs in the hospitality, service, and retail sectors. Coffee for Good is located at 48 Maple Avenue in the historic Solomon Mead House, circa 1858, on the campus of the Second Congregational Church in Greenwich. I encourage you to come to Coffee for Good and to see them in action. Contact employer at coffeeforgood.org, and you can learn more about the learning program for those with special needs by going online to coffeeforgood.org forward slash employers it's time for greenwich life as it is and was on today's show we are going to feature an article that was written by Irwin edwards and published in the greenwich news and graphic on friday july 16th 1920 and it focuses on a very prominent building at the top of Greenwich Avenue. It's the one uh, that uh, is on the corner with West Putnam Avenue, um, and it is known as Pickwick Corners. It was built by Isaac Lewis Mead and um, very prominent at the top of of Greenwich Avenue. It's the one that is the um, English Tudor style. And with that said, let me tell you what Mr. Edwards had to say about it. If anyone had told the keeper of the old Cross Road Country Store, which stood on the corner of Rocky Neck Lane and the Boston Post Road, that a hundred years hence, a candy factory in a three-story brick building would occupy the site of his store, he would probably have laughed at the idea. He could have asked, and with good reason too, what is a candy factory? I never heard of one, for candy was practically unknown in his time. One must bear in mind that it is only within the past 50 really but 25 years ago that this confection has been produced in quantities and a perfection has come into such popular favor and great demand. But what he didn't dream of has come to pass, for on that very corner a candy factory is in full operation and was established not very long ago. The three-story brick building, which this industry occupies, has two distinct claims for distinction other than being a candy factory, and those distinctions are of a historical nature. One is that it was the first brick business block created in the borough of Greenwich, that would be the downtown area, or for that matter, in the town, of which there are now many on Greenwich Avenue, the business center of this large community. The other claim to distinction lies in the fact that it stands on the site of the Old Country Crossroads Store, which was the first business venture established in this section of Horseneck, as it was called in those days. This brick building was established over half a century ago when such structures were a rarity. It was built by the late I.L. Meade, that would be Isaac Lewis Meade. The comment was made at the time that it was too big, cost too much money, and wouldn't pay. Time, however, proved that he had not erred in judgment. There are perhaps no more historic corners in Greenwich than where the three streets, Greenwich Avenue, Putnam Avenue, and Lafayette Place meet, the three thoroughfares known in the early days as Rocky Neck Lane, the King's Highway, and the Country Road leading north. Historic are those corners in that three taverns connected more or less with the history of the town stood on or near those roadways. Those taverns were, quote, ye House of Public Entertainment, unquote, the Weed Tavern, the Mansion, afterwards the Lennox House, besides the Cross Road Country Store. Before and during the Revolutionary War and after, the tavern was an important place in the town not for not only was it an eating place where good cheer abounded but it was a meeting place where the affairs of the colony were discussed and now pickwick corners that is the new name given to the locality bids fair to be almost as widely known as dickens pickwick papers a book a book by which its written humor convulsed a reading world with laughter Pickwick Corner seems an appropriate name for the neighborhood because of the number of new ventures that have sprung up there within the past three or four years. The Pickwick Inn, the uh, Pickwick Candy Shop, and the Pickwick Arms, all separate enterprises but under the control of a parent company called Pickwick Corners, make of it a distinctive locality. The wonderful success of the Pickwick Inn which has not only astonished Greenwich, but hotel men from New York to Boston as well, more than anything else was what induced the forming of the organizations, the Pickwick Candy Shop and the Pickwick Arms. The Pickwick Candy Shop began life on May 28, 1919 with two girls as employees. That was just a year ago. The business has so increased that today there are now some 80 persons employed in the building making candy, mostly girls, who are experts in that line of work. Its candies have found their way into the White House, have been sent to London and Paris, and are sold in some of the large and fashionable hotels in New York. The demand for the Pickwick confectionery has so increased that the entire building has been taken over for the business, including the top floor, which has been occupied for many years by the Masons. Some changes are being made in the interior of the factory, so as to permit of the rooms being more conveniently arranged, which will facilitate the making of the suites. It should be said here that all the candies produced in this shop are made by hand, which accounts in large measure for their superiority, opportunity being given to more closely inspect the mixture of the ingredients and the making of the confection. Arrangements are now being made for the employ of over 200 persons by October, all of which tells its own story other than, it, in words, of the success of the venture, which has grown and grown beyond expectations. The candies which are made in this shop include all those made in a factory of this kind. They are put up in handsome boxes and labeled in attractive ways, quote, pickwick in chocolates, unquote, end quote, Commodore Biltmore Candies, unquote, the hotels are in New York where the Pickwick Candies are sold, and, quote, Pickwick Corners, unquote, Caramels, and so on. It was predicted in these columns some months ago, or even before Prohibition went into effect, that candy and sweets of all kinds would take the place largely of liquors. That prediction has come true but prohibition did not altogether create the demand for the confectionery of the Pickwick Candy Shop. Their purity, freshness, flavor, variety, and attractiveness, and being handmade give them their distinctiveness and have much to do with the demand for them. The officers of the Pickwick Candy Shop are Russell A. Cowles, President, Emil Newman, Vice President, Margaret Kelcher, Treasurer, John E. McBowen, connected with a number of hotels in New York, is one of the stockholders in the company. Victorian Summer, the historic houses of Belhaven Park, Greenwich, Connecticut, by Matt Bernard, is an incredible compilation of Belhaven's rich history. Featuring beautiful photos and ephemera, the book is the culmination of decades of work and research, taking its readers to America's Gilded Age. Well, on today's show, we are going to pay a visit to Park Cottage. Its principal owner was William A. Park, that's spelled P-A-R-K-E. It was built in eighteen ninety. The address is fifty-five Otter Rock Drive at Mayo Avenue. Its architect was E. G. W. Dietrich, and it was altered in nineteen o six. Park Cottage borrowed much of its original picturesque detailing from the Federal style, that great classicizing design epoch following the Revolution and continuing until about eighteen thirty. The central tower, square and squat looking was trimmed with colonial style swag and a decorative balustrade with finials not unlike certain new england church towers in the early 19th century the body of the house with its solid masses pediment gables and fanlight windows also harkened to, to the federal era but other features rendered park cottage a rather oddball hybrid for example, the house bore the Queen Anne's Hallmarks asymmetry, semicircular parlour quadrant, and large two story serving linear veranda extending the length of the house ending at the entrance with its elaborate port No photographs of the original version of Park Cottage survive. Little is known of the owner William A. Park, though he did occasionally surface in the newspaper society pages. He also appears to have been busy in social and yachting circles, serving as treasurer of the Greenwich Casino Association, now known as the Belhaven Club. A 1906 renovation of Park Cottage in the art and craft style saw the lower story clapboards replaced with natural-hued shingles, the tower details removed, and given a hipped roof. And the roof covered, covering on the sleeping ports outside, the rounded second-story master bedroom removed. The tower received a latest-like arts and crafts battening that all or encompassed all four stories. A large semicircular three-story addition was added to the eastern end of the house and added considerable balance to that end of the house, allowing the kitchen to be brought up from the lower garden basement level. Numerous bedrooms were added on the upper stories. The new addition was also covered in latest work trimmings that included a surface porch on the first floor and a porch on the second floor. This was adjacent to the newly installed Gentleman's Library that contained a rusticated exposed rubble stone fireplace. Park Cottage made news briefly in the summer of 1908 when the New York Times reported that a well-known New York brewer, Frederick W. Wirth, was renting the house for the season when, quote, sneak thieves, unquote, broke in, drugged the dogs who were found, quote, lying stupid on the floor, unquote, and made off with a diamond ring and a diamond pin worth about $5,000. It had been, or it had been, a busy day for Missus Wors when the burglary occurred. She was testifying in a Greenwich courtroom, having accused the park gardener of slapping her across the face with a letter. The judge ordered the gardener to pay a fine and "quote unquote" get out of town. <laughs> the surviving pictures and details of the cottage from the turn of the century, and one is reprinted in the book, by the way are from a 1919 auction brochure describing the house as containing 18 rooms, 11 bedrooms, and four bathrooms in the main house, a two-story frame garage and stable that could house four cars and five horses, with living quarters for two families, and a greenhouse complex with orchards. The 3.3-acre park estate extended along Otter Rock Drive from Mayo Avenue to Walsh Lane. The property was subdivided in the mid-1930s, and the outbuildings were demolished to make way for a French provincial jewel box of a house built in 1935 on the southern plot abutting Walsh Walsh Lane. The Rushton W. Skakel family purchased the house in the 1960s, and over the years added to it, almost doubling the size. As abutting neighbors subdivided their adjoining properties throughout the 1970s and 1980s, Skakel aggressively acquired the adjacent parcels to prevent infill houses being constructed abutting his home. Today, the former Skakel property encompasses more than four acres, which includes the carriage house of the former Nathaniel Withrow rental cottage at, at 68 Mayo Avenue. Through the years, E.G.W. Dietrich's design proved surprisingly adaptable to the architectural fashion of its day. Today, Park Cottage, which still defies easy categorization, stylistically has been restored. The 11,000 square foot house remains on just 1.5 acres. Now, one of the things that uh, Matt Bernard has um, added, which I thought was really fantastic, was a um, a biography of the architect that would be Ernest G.W. Dietrich. And I'd like to uh, to share that with you. Let me just bring that up. And here he is. He lived from 1857 to 1924 in, uh, in New York. Often a footnote in American architectural history, Ernest G.W. Dietrich, AIA, became an important innovator in domestic design. His place in the development of the Dutch colonial revival style, as well as his role from the embryonic beginnings with Gustav Stickley, when they created the Craftsman House, firmly establishes Dietrich's role as a vanguard of late 19th and early 20th century styles. Born in Pittsburgh, he was educated in local schools and later graduated at Dutz College in the city. He also attended Western College of Pennsylvania, now the University of Pittsburgh, and acquired a basic training in architecture in the office of Drummond Kuhn. Later, during 1881, he was employed as a draftsman by James T. Steen and in the following year joined Charles N. Barthberger in organizing the firm of Barthberger and Dietrich. After maintaining the partnership for several years, Mr. Dietrich withdrew in 1889 and opened his own office in New York City. His early work there was largely residential, but in the later years of the practice, he was commissioned to plan both public and commercial buildings. Elected to the AIA in 1921, he served at one time as treasurer of the Brooklyn chapter. His death occurred in Freeport, Long Island, the village where he resided in his later years. And that, my friends, was our trip to Park Cottage in Victorian Summer, the historic houses of Belhaven Park, Greenwich, Connecticut by Matt Barnard. It is available for borrowing through the Greenwich Library system, and you can do that by going online to GreenwichLibrary.org, or you can just stop by your nearest or your favorite branch of the library system. I would ask you to consider purchasing a copy of Matt Bernard's book. It really is a, um, a wonderful one, uh, a superb gift if you wish uh, to uh, find that special gift for a special someone. And you can uh, purchase those at the Greenwich Historical Society's museum store at 47 Strickland Road in Cosgob, uh, where members of the Greenwich Historical Society, by the way, enjoy a discount. And while you're there, why don't you grab yourself a free cup of uh, coffee or tea in the artist's cafe? You can learn more by going to GreenwichHistory.org. You can also call the Greenwich Historical Society's Museum Store at 203-869-6899. Well, ladies and gentlemen, it is time for Crimes and Misdemeanors. This is the segment of the show, in which we reveal the fact that uh, not all of the people in Greenwich were law-abiding souls. Unfortunately, it's an imperfect world. And we also continue the observance of the 125th anniversary of the founding of the Greenwich Police Department. Um, I have several things I wanted to uh, share with you. One of them is an editorial um, that uh, was published in the Greenwich News on August 2nd, 1907. And the headline on this is Our Police Force. Uh, And it goes as follows. At the adjourned annual borough meeting, that would be the borough of Greenwich a week ago, last night a citizen of Greenwich made a lengthy and eloquent speech, the purport of which was that we had a well-trained and effective police force, but that it was costing us an exorbitant sum and it was not really worthwhile. Hmm. The first statement was undoubtedly true. We have an efficient Um, as efficient a force as any of its size in the state and those who are familiar with the work of the police know this very well the rest is not true and it served mainly to remind us that the police appropriations ought to be increased and that the money thus put out will be very well spent At present, we are spending $6,500 annually to protect the lives of 4,000 people and many million dollars worth of property. Remember, this is in 1907. The men who comprise this protective force are seven in number, a chief, sergeant, four patrolmen, and a clerk. The salaries of these men range from $40 to $70 a month, and with the exception of one day in 30, and that one day has but recently been given, they devote practically all of their time to their duty. The manner in which they perform that duty has never been criticized by thinking people, and the good work which they have accomplished would take many pages to relate. That the number of men we have at present is not sufficient to cover the territory assigned to them, everyone who has studied the question will admit." Maple Avenue and the portion of Putnam Avenue east of Maple Avenue is left practically unguarded because there are not men enough to take care of it. At present, we are not having any burglaries or frequency of none particular, any particular sort of crime. Therefore, no one is strongly advocating an increase in the force. But it would seem that for that reason, it is, very, it is a very good time to take the necessary additions. Uh, It is poor consolation to lock the barn door after the horse has been stolen. And as poor uh, poor to increase the force after two or three people have been robbed or worse, crimes committed. Two more policemen are needed and one more is absolutely necessary. That comes from 1907. Now I have a couple of Um, A a couple of uh, (laughs) stories, crime stories And these date literally from uh, about a century ago Um, July 27th, this was published in 1923 The first one is Ladies in Fight And then we have A Prisoner Poet um, Which I think you'll find interesting And uh, let's go on with this Ladies in a Fight, Mrs. Femme Fined for Striking and Biting, Mrs. Talmadge That's not good. There was considerable excitement in the vicinity of Northfield Street last Friday afternoon when Mrs. Martha Finn, widow of Bartholomew Finn, assaulted Mrs. Martha Talmadge, wife of Robert Talmadge, hitting her on the back and chest with a stick and then biting her on the arm so severely that it was necessary to have the wounds cauterized. The entire neighborhood was aroused and, as a result, Mrs. Finn was summoned to court by motorcycle cop Tim Daly Saturday morning to answer to a charge of assault and breach of the peace. Mrs. Talmadge testified that her little boy with some of the other playmates, was out on the sidewalk in front of Mrs. Finn's house when she heard Mrs. Finn reprimanding the children. She went out of the house and found that Mrs. Finn had taken a little wagon away from her boy, and she politely asked Mrs. Finn to return it. Mrs. Finn refused, whereupon Mrs. Talmage went into Mrs. Finn's yard to get the wagon. Then she claimed Mrs. Finn committed the assault. Mrs. Talmadge bore the, mar- the marks of the encounter on her chest an arm where it was alleged Mrs. Finn had bitten her. Mrs. Talmadge further claimed that Mrs. Finn tried to break the wagon with the stick she wielded. Mrs. Frank Sheehan, Mrs. James Fogg, and Mrs. Ruth Brush, neighbors who witnessed the assault, corroborated Mrs. Talmadge's testimony, and the evidence showed that Mrs. Finn has been a great source of annoyance to her neighbors for some time past. Mrs. Finn kept the courtroom in an uproar when she took the witness stand. Neither Prosecutor White or Judge Meade could get a word in edgewise, and both of the court officials finally had to give up in despair. Mrs. Finn exhibited a large stone and a top, which she produced from a paper bag, which she claimed the children had thrown onto her driveway. Or doorway. One of the children, she said, made the remark, quote, "Come on, let's get the old devil out." Unquote. Her life had been made miserable, according to her, uh, her story, by these children who romped up and down in front of her property, threw all sorts of rubbish into her yard, and were a general source of annoyance to her. This is what started the trouble last Friday, she declared, and it was Mrs. Talmadge, she said, who first grabbed her by the hair of the head, and while her arm was across her mouth, she bit her in self-defense. She asserted she had been unable to get any police protection in Greenwich. When Judge Mead found Mrs. Finn guilty and imposed a fine of $15 in cost, she exclaimed, quote, well, that is pretty good, unquote, and continued such a flow of words in such a loud voice that she finally had to be led from the courtroom by two policemen. Now, our second story um, on today's show is um, from the same edition of the uh, newspaper, the Greenwich News and Graphic, and the headline in this is a prisoner poet. Well, this is interesting. Rocco Lupo of Greenwich, one of three gunmen charged with robbing the Wildwood Waffle House on the Boston Post Road east of Sound Beach Avenue several months ago, who with two other pals was bound over to the next term of the Supreme. Superior Court under $7,500 bail, and who was recently was released when his father went on his bond, wrote the following lines of poetry while confined in the Bridgeport Jail. It is entitled, quote-unquote, Life's Misery, and the poem goes as follows. Live and let live, so they say, but I just exist day by day. And as I sit alone in my humble cell, living a life of misery and hell. My thoughts roam back to a vision clear, and it's no other vision but you, babe dear. For my love for you is stronger than all, even stronger than all these bars and walls. You are mine, babe dear, to have and to hold, no matter what done, no matter what told. Although I exist where no happiness dwells, and cast into the debt's, of sorrow and hell. But it was not I alone who felt the pain as I've done my first wrong and the last. The day I parted from you at Greenwich Station, your heartbroken face I will always see. But may God protect and keep you for me as I drift along in life's misery. (laughs) The Boy Scouts have been a presence in Greenwich, Connecticut for over a century, and with my good friend Mr. Kevin M.J. O'Connor of Jeffrey Matthews Wealth Management, who is very active with the local Boy Scouts or scouting organization here in Greenwich, I found this story from a century ago, uh, August 10th, 1923 was its publication date. Its title Scouts on Tour Boys of North Greenwich Church C, New York. Well, that must have been a lot of fun about a century ago. The story goes as follows Boy Scout Troop No. 4 of North Greenwich, consisting of Scoutmaster Raymond P. Stanf- Sanford, Assistant Scoutmaster Thomas Grierson, and Scouts Andrew Jones. Boer Jones, Winfred Beard, Mofford Downs, George Jones, Norman Jones, and a Canadian scout, Alexander Roberts, had an unusual outing in New York last week under the leadership of the Scoutmaster. The troop, in full uniform, left the church at 10 a.m. on August 2nd, and they motored to White Plains, where they took the Western Electric to 180th Street, New York City. At St. Nicholas Avenue, they took a Riverside Drive and Fifth Avenue bus to Boy Scout headquarters, where they bought considerable equipment for themselves and for the troop. By special permission of the police, they had their dinner under a shady tree in Gramercy Park, where they attracted considerable attention from the passing throngs. It is almost needless to say that at the conclusion of their noon day repast they quote-unquote policed up (laughs) i don't know what that means the grounds uh most thoroughly i think that means they cleaned them up that's really nice all right back to the story in the afternoon they were thrilled by a truly great moving picture the covered wagon quote-unquote at the criterion theater tickets having been secured for the best seats two weeks in advance In the late afternoon, the khaki-clad lads marched in columns by twos through the Lower East Side and the Bowery to Chinatown. As they passed through the crowded streets, they were taken for cowboys, soldiers, and whatnot. In Chinatown, the boys were served a special Chinese dinner at the Port Arthur Restaurant, the proprietor of which is a friend of the former pastor, Mr. Price, and also of Mr. Sanford. After this sumptuous meal, which the scouts tried to eat with chopsticks with most amusing results, they they took the Cobbler line across the Brooklyn Bridge to Cody Island, where they tried, quote-unquote, everything that was going to the extent that time permitted. As it was, they did not get back to the Bowery Y, I guess it would be the YMCA, until 12.45 a.m. Friday morning. There, special beds at 50 cents per scout had been roped off in the men's dormitory, where the entire troop, wholesomely fatigued by the day's excitement and travel, enjoyed a good night's rest. After shower baths in the morning, the splendid breakfast in the basement cafeteria, every scout was ready for the Friday program, which took them to the aquarium, the Woolworth Tower, to all of the departments of congregational headquarters at 287 Fourth Avenue, through all of Bronx Park. The grand finale took place at Miss Nan Huston's where the boys were given a delightful dinner party in honor of the Canadian scout Alexander Roberts, who, as a guest of Miss Huston, had been for some time affiliated with the troop. The scoutmaster had tickets for the Friday baseball game between the Yankees and the Cleveland Indians, but they took off or they took the quote-unquote call-off of the game on account of the president's death. As such good scouts, their plans are being made for them to see a National League game later in the season, when they will be shown the U.S. Weather Bureau and other points of interest. Well, the Greenwich Graphic published an article that will interest, I think, many of you who are parents uh, or uh, you are caregivers to uh, to children, whatever the case may be. The date on this is March 15, 1912. And the article is How to Amuse Children. Uh, you mean you didn't know? Well, I'm going to share with you what they thought that would entail in 1912. Uh, the story goes as follows. And by the way, it says Many tasks mothers can give little ones to do. Well, Of course, you know, this is the early 21st century, so um, I think that this will apply to fathers and others, grandparents and brothers and sisters and uncles and aunts, you know, whatever the case may be. Anyway, I'm going to read this verbatim. I thought it was uh, a bit amusing, and uh, hopefully you will feel the same way, too. There is a great deal in the way of keeping peace in the family generally, and in the nursery particularly, in letting children help. A child is naturally busy. Watch the little one just beginning to discover that he has fingers and toes that wiggle and see how busy he keeps them. Watch the creeping little one that makes his unnoticed way to a cherished and neat work basket and see how spoons, pincushions, and all the useful articles fly as he throws them as far as his chubby arms can, not as many think, from a purely mischievous spirit, but simply because he wants to be busy. Supply a child with something, anything it can do, and it will be happy. Set it down with an injunction to, quote, sit still and behave, unquote, and watch the wriggling little figure and hopeless countenance. There can be nothing more barbarous than to insist upon absolute quiet from a baby. (laughs) And there are so many small things a mother can give her little ones to do they can lift a chair and place it on the other side of the room they can carry a small rug out on the porch make believe to shake it and if provided with a tiny broom make it still more earnest belief in to sweep it how happy and self-satisfied is the small girl that is quote unquote helping mother <laughs> unless one has thought out the matter it is more than amazing how very quick a little child is to learn here, truly, we may almost believe in the descent from simian ancestry. This really caught my attention. That is, if we have ever watched a monkey imitate the imitations of people. I once, not me, i the writer, that is, I once was the proud mistress of a darling little Jocko who, when detected in one of his thousands of impish tricks, would place one tiny paw upon his head and the other on his little tummy and moan in approved style. If asked sympathetically, poor Jocko, sick, he would look as if... (laughs) as if at the edge of the grave if forgiven and told so in words and by tone of voice the little rascal would scamper in high glee all about showing plainly that there was nothing on earth the matter now really a baby is very much like a monkey all right Mm -hmm. keep it busy and keep it out of mischief let it find things to do itself and it will be sure to find something that will create havoc Give a ball or cord. True, there will be snarls, and the cord may be lost for all good forever and a day. But, oh, the pleasure and delight it has given that baby. Keep the little ones busy if they are to be happy, and do not, I beg, try to make them, quote-unquote, sit still. It is impossible. Back in the late 1980s and into the 1990s, I was actually a local history columnist with Greenwich Time. I'd like to share with you one of my columns. It pertains to Founder's Day. Uh, And of course, being that today is Founder's Day, I thought this would be obviously appropriate. Um, This is a column that um, was published uh, in 1993. And the column at that time was called Looking Back. And the headline on this is when Greenwich became, quote-unquote, whisker-conscious, sorry, in in 1956. In 1956, Greenwich Time announced that Greenwich is, or will become, whisker-conscious. Founders' Day was fast approaching, and many Greenwich men sported beards for the occasion of the town's 216th year. How did this come about? The trend started at a meeting of Greenwich Merchants Bureau of the Greenwich Merchant Bureau at the Pickwick Arms Hotel at the top of Greenwich Avenue. Members met to plan the town's first annual observance of Founders' Day since 1940. Someone came up with the idea of promoting the growing of beards, quote, to provide a more realistic atmosphere and authenticity, unquote, to the celebrations in July. It was not long before some locals went unshaven. Greenwich Time even joined the fund by featuring photographs touched up to illustrate what some local dignitaries would look like with whiskers, which the newspaper featured on the cover page of its June 5th edition. The offering of prizes for beards contests began to proliferate, as did the number of bearded men in 1956 Greenwich. Remington, for example, furnished six shavers for the beard shaving contest. The man who shaved quickest was the winner. Commander Edward Whitehead, president of Schweppes Limited USA, was named contest judge. The 216th Founders Day celebrations were by all counts well attended. About 15,000 enthusiastic people were present, especially at the block party and parade. This colorful spectacle featured many women of colonial-era attire. Antique cars, along with the latest automobiles of the day, cruised down Greenwich Avenue, and the J.C. sponsored a beauty contest for local young ladies. Many fraternal public and societal and service associations participated in the festivities. Float Celebrating Greenwich History Glided Past bystanders. The Junior Chamber of Commerce organized the Founders Day Block Party, where the beard contest took place. Jeff Fox took first prize for Best Full Beard. Ellis Reitzel, chairman of the week-long celebrations, won first prize for his sideburns, and Louis Martin II finished first. In the beer shaving contest, I have no idea what beer shaving is. Uh, You can look it up on your own, I guess. Becoming whisker contest did not last after the Founders Day celebration in 1956, but it was an original way to attract attention to the heritage of Greenwich. You know, I remember growing up here uh, earlier in my life when I was a much Younger soul, that uh, one of the things that we would occasionally see, we haven't, I, you know, I haven't seen this in years, is skywriting. And uh, in the process of preparing for this show, I think what possibly may be the first instance of skywriting, you know, people write names or messages or whatever in the sky using planes, um, was from literally a century ago on August 10th. This story was reported in the Greenwich uh, News and uh, Graphic. And it goes as follows. Um, the headline on this is writing on the sky. Daring aviator does big advertising on high. That daredevil aviator who writes quote unquote lucky strike and smoke in the sky. That would be a brand of cigarettes, by the way. Performed his awe-inspiring feat a couple of miles above the ground here yesterday afternoon. He was so high in the air at times that his machine was hardly discernible and at the plainest it was a mere speck. The sight of the smoke letters apparently forming themselves against the clear blue of the heavens, as if being written by an invisible pen, was almost uncanny. The words kept their form and alignment for several minutes in the quiet air of the quote-unquote upper register, and for an hour or more the smoke was discernible floating lazily along the heavenly billboard. The stunt was designed to advertise a brand of cigarettes and tobacco. And that was a century ago, well, more or less. And this was um, uh, published in the News Graphic here in Greenwich on August 10, 1923. Well, it was a century ago that the people of Greenwich opened up their Friday, July 20th, 1923 edition of the Greenwich News Graphic and learned of a woman ordained minister here in Greenwich. And her name was Mrs. Elbridge C. Torrey. And um, let me tell you a little bit about her based on the article that we have um, in, in, actually literally in front of me right now. Woman Ordained minister says the headline, Mrs. Elbridge C. Torrey Takes Up Deceased Husband's Work. Mrs. Elbridge C. Torrey, and that's spelled T-O-R-R-E-Y, was ordained as a congregational minister by the Council of Churches of the Fairfield Association last Wednesday at Long Ridge Congregational Church, that would be in Stamford, by the way, which had called her to the pastorate where she has been serving most acceptably under license for two years. She thus takes up the work of her husband, the late Reverend E.C. Torrey, who had the joint pastorate of Longridge and Standwich, Standwich being in Greenwich. Mrs. Torrey was the first woman to be thus ordained in Fairfield County and one of the few in Connecticut and Massachusetts, the latter having three. The council was large attended. Greenwich representatives and delegates were Reverend and Mrs. Merrill of Stanwich, Dr. Huckle and Wilbur S. Wright of Greenwich, and that would be of the Second Congregational Church, the Reverend Raymond Sanford and Paul Ferris of North Greenwich, that would be the North Greenwich Congregational Church. Reverend Dr. Oliver Huckle delivered the quote-unquote, charge charge of the minister, unquote. Reverend Alfred Grant Martin of Stamford gave the right hand of fellowship. Reverend Lyman H. Merrill of Stanwich read the scripture lesson. The benediction was pronounced by the newly ordained pastor, Reverend Anne C. Torrey. Friends of Mrs. Torrey of Longridge, Stamford, Stanwich and Greenwich presented her with a handsome little runabout car between the afternoon and evening services. Others gave a beautiful wristwatch. That was nice. Mrs. Torrey was educated at the Academy at Kingston, New York, and attended classes at Dartmouth College and Bangor Seminary with her husband. She occupies the parsonage at Long Ridge. Well, congratulations to Reverend Anne Tory, That was really quite an accomplishment, and that was literally a century ago here in Greenwich, Connecticut. You know, before I conclude this week's show, um, I, I wanted to remind many of you that I am quite active in the great outdoors all year round. That includes all kinds of weather, too, and I've been doing this for many years, I expect that to uh, to continue. Now, if you're here in Greenwich, Connecticut, you've probably noticed me seemingly everywhere on foot, hiking along roads and streets almost daily, and you'd be right. <laughs> now, for the past year particularly, my daily exercise regimen has taken on greater significance, Why is that? Well, there's a bit of a backstory, and I'd like to share it with you because I'm hoping that uh, many other people will benefit from what I am about to to say. A year ago in June, I started to experience breathing challenges. Uh, Pollen was much worse last year, as I recall. Uh, So I assumed that was the reason my breathing challenges increased and I would be out of breath, for example. Uh, walking halfway down the driveway uh, when walking down to uh, to get the mail, which, you know, is a pretty serious thing, if you ask me. A neighbor insisted on driving me to the emergency room at uh, the local hospital here in Greenwich, and to my surprise, um, I was admitted immediately for tests. Now, the last time that I was admitted to a hospital um, was when I was seven years old, and let's just say that I am uh, much older than seven years old now. So uh, I was there for five days, and what happened was that I was diagnosed with hypertension and something called congestive heart failure. Now, believe me, I am not going to drop dead uh, in the middle of this podcast, and I'm not going to drop dead uh, on the side of the road or anything like that. They said that my heart was pumping um, at about maybe 40%. Um, and uh, the, you know it could have been much worse. So uh, the cardiologist said that uh, congestive heart failure is actually misnamed. I agree with that, by the way. Uh, and um, I'm not a candidate for a heart attack, by the way. In fact, when they did uh, a test on my heart, um, the nurse who was supervising the um, uh, the test said to me, uh, as she was looking at her monitor, she says, "My God," she said, "Your heart is in great shape." which was a source of relief uh, for me. So all of that hiking, all that working out you know that I do uh, daily, challenging myself daily for years, uh, was uh, worth it. Now, my stay at the uh, hospital was mixed, let's put it um, that way. Um, there was, shall we say, a lot of room for improvement. Um, and it got to the point where I actually signed myself out. And I decided that I was going to be the architect of my own recovery. This is what I have been really focused on, especially for the, uh, for the last year. Um, what I do is that I hike a minimum of six to eight miles a day per day with maybe one uh, maximum of two rest days uh, a week. Uh, I'm considered stronger than ever before. I'm having loads of fun uh, proving certain uh, doctor's uh, who underestimated me wrong, and uh, also making a lot of changes, especially in diet. One thing that I walked away from all of this was, was um, definitely cutting down on salty foods, uh, and actually looking at the cans and the packages to uh, to see the salt content of um, the foods uh, purchased at the grocery store, and to say the least, it was quite appalling. Um, I am also going with the organic unprocessed foods. And believe me, my health has improved tremendously. I urge you to go out and to get yourself checked. Get away from the salty foods. Um, I found out that there's such a thing as drinking too much water, which apparently I had been doing. Um, so I restrict myself to about maybe uh, three liters a day. I am very, very physically active. I really don't give a damn what anybody thinks of uh, how I look when I'm hiking along the road, so if I'm all sweaty and everything, um, you know, that's uh, that's just life. So um, also, I've been uh, told to reduce my tension, especially by eliminating toxic people from my life, and believe me, that's been an enormous amount of fun. So. If you see me along the road, um, you can beep your horn and wave a lot of the delivery people, the uh, United States Postal Service people do that, um, and uh, others uh, around um, who see me all the time and know what I'm doing. uh, I appreciate the encouragement. I really, really do. There's one thing that I'm going to request um, of those of you who drive on the roads, would you kindly please slow down a little bit? Um, there are times when I have come very, very close to um, to being hit. There are other people out there um, who are in uh, the uh, the same set of circumstances that I am, and um, and so uh, if we could all get along, um, you know, together by slowing down, I promise that I will watch and make sure that I'm not walking down the middle of the yellow line when you come. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> Driving along, and um, and hopefully everything will be uh, happily ever after. I'm having a lot of fun, and um, if you're not going out there and getting your daily dose of uh, sunshine and exercise, this is a great time to uh, to do that. With that, I would like to thank you, my friends, for tuning in to the Tuesday, 18th of July, 2023 episode of the Greenwich Town for All Seasons show podcast. It is hosted by me. I'm Jeffrey Bingham. Me, a 17th century descendant of, or I I should say a direct descendant of the 17th century founders of the town of Greenwich, Connecticut, a place known as the Gateway to New England. It is one of America's most notable and attractive communities. It's a special place that we call home. As always, I want to thank my very good uh, friends at Alexander Affiliates, Eastern Neurologic Services, Kevin M.J. O'Connor of the Jeffrey Matthews Wealth Management, and of course we're promoting Michael Halupka Tree Service LLC this month um a, a tradition that I've decided to start here on the um, on the show and of course I wanted to listen um, uh, to say my thanks to um, all the listeners out there um, who uh, donate to uh, make this show possible contact me anytime at Greenwich Town for all seasons at gmail.com listen to our shows no paywall at Greenwich dot com. Our next show is scheduled for next Tuesday, the 25th of July, 2023. I really appreciate every single one of you for your interest and enthusiasm for celebrating Greenwich, Connecticut's history. And I look forward to being back with you next week. Take care. Bye-bye now.